does it mean to follow Jesus? Okay, depending on how we've answered that first question, but if we, in the answering that first question, have said, look, yes, Jesus is someone worthy of following, what then does it look like to follow him? That's really the two questions we're going to be unpacking and answering in our passage today. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? What does it mean to follow him? Because Luke chapter 9 really is about, uh, is dealing with this topic of discipleship. To be a disciple of Jesus simply means to be a follower of Jesus. And Luke chapter 9 is unpacking that. Last week, as Mark uh, preached, we saw that Jesus back then and still today loves to use his disciples, use his followers in his work. We saw that actually that won't be easy, but that he takes what, what little we have and multiplies it and uses it. And today we get, again, as I said, to the heart of what discipleship is. And so our first one, we've got two that we're going to be looking at today. You see them on your sheets if you want to take notes. Um, it should appear on the screen as well. Uh, know that Jesus is the crucified Christ. Looks like my phone's not working. Sorry. Other, other ends, don't worry. You've got it on your sheets. Know that Jesus is the crucified Christ. Our passage today in verse uh, 18 starts with Jesus praying. It's actually what we find him doing at a lot of the significant milestones in Luke's gospel. Every time something big or new is going to happen, we find Jesus praying. And here he is again. And he's with his disciples. And he asks them to, to gauge kind of popular opinion. So if you have a look at uh, verse 18, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Who do the crowds say that I am? And we get different answers. Verse 19, and they answered John the Baptist. But the others say Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. You know, family fortunes. You know, you go onto the street, ask 100 people uh, what their answer would be, and our survey says, well, this is kind of a bit like what Jesus is doing here. Look, who, who do people say I am? And I had slides, you won't see them. But no, like, top answer, John the Baptist. People think that John the Baptist is back. Now, we think that's a bit confusing, is it? We, we know they're two different people. In fact, they were together at the same time. So how, how does that work? But, but they see the kind of things that Jesus is doing... And they were the kind of things that John did. So they think, well, maybe this is John the Baptist risen again. Others, the next kind of answer, Elijah. Probably because, well, it was because there was a prophecy in Malachi 4 that, that God was going to send Elijah before the great day of the Lord. Now, actually, that Elijah figure was John. That was John the Baptist, the one who's getting people ready for the Lord. But they thought maybe it was Elijah. The others, hey, one of the prophets, maybe Moses, maybe Isaiah, maybe Haggai, one of those other prophets. They were all positive responses, but they were all lacking responses. Now, if we ask this question today, and maybe I should have done this this week, maybe if I should have gone outside Sainsbury's and stopped people and said, who do you say that Jesus is? What kind of answers would we get? I think the kind of more positive end, we'd probably get some people saying, you know, he was an interesting historical figure. Or he was a good moral teacher. Showed us a good way to live. 
Maybe he was a, a great healer, able to do remarkable miracles and, and make people's lives better. I guess kind of traveling down to, to the other end, you get people saying, well, he's just an irrelevancy. Maybe even he was wicked you know, for all the trouble that his followers have done in the world. Now, it's interesting to think about what others would say, but that wasn't why Jesus was asking this. So verse 20, then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Okay, that's what the crowd say. How about you disciples? Who do you say that I am? Just a chapter ago, in chapter 8, having seen Jesus calm the storms, the disciples clearly still didn't know. They said, who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? But something, maybe it was seeing the feeding of the 5,000, God's amazing provision for the people that was done through them. Maybe it was that. Maybe it's just a culmination of things coming together. But something has clicked. Because, verse 20, and Peter answered, the Christ of God. The Christ of God. Now, the word Christ uh, is the, the Greek word for Messiah. Uh, the word Messiah, Christ, just means anointed one. So back in the Old Testament, uh, you would find priests, when they started their, their, their job, they were anointed. They had oil poured on them. Also prophets, again, to mark them out. But most importantly of all, kings. When a king began their reign or was going to begin their reign, they had oil poured over them. They were anointed. They were cho- that, that marked them out as chosen by God for a specific role. But as the Old Testament went on, it, it wasn't just the fact that there were anointed ones, of which there were many. No, we see that God's people were looking forward to the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. The one that God said he was going to send this king who was going to come and rescue the people. And they were looking forward to him. And now as Jesus asks the disciples, they've got it. There we go. You see, the, 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 follow, um, really the crowds... Well, they say, well, who was it? John, Elijah, um, who was Jesus? John, Elijah, Isaiah, Moses. All their jobs were pointing forward to the Christ, looking forward to him. If I could have the next slide, please. And the crowd thought, well, Jesus, here's Jesus, another one in that line. Maybe he's one of them, or is he just another one? But here he is, this prophet who's, who's getting people ready for the one. But no, Peter, if you have the next slide, please. Peter sees that, no, this isn't just another one in that line of people getting people ready for the Christ. He is the Christ. He is the Christ of God. Here is the king that God has promised he was going to send who is going to rescue the people. Here he is. And this is a huge moment. As I said, look, the angels had said this before. Demons had recognized it. Now the disciples have got it too. And we would think this is the time to stop and celebrate. Woohoo! Peter's got it. The disciples, they've got it. He is the Christ. Well done, Peter. Go, go tell everyone. Which is what makes the next bit a bit of a surprise. Verse 21. And he charged 
and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell, no, tell this to no one. What? Why? He's just got it. He's the Christ. But Jesus says, and he doesn't just say it, but actually, do you notice? And he strictly charged and commanded them. He's leaving no doubt of, or confusion, room for confusion here. Do not go and tell anyone this. Because it's not enough for the disciples to know that Jesus is the Christ. They have to know that Jesus is the crucified Christ. The crucified Christ. Look, a lot of ink has been spilt about why people think, why did Jesus tell them not, not to go in here? I don't, really don't think it's that complicated. Because just see the, the connection between these two verses. And he, stri- and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Don't tell anyone saying, I'm going to be rejected, killed, and rise again. You see, Jesus didn't want any confusion as to what it meant, the fact that he was the Christ. The general understanding of that day and the anticipation was that this Christ was going to come and he was going to overthrow the Roman rule. He was going to set the people, uh, God's people kind of free, liberate them and, and set them up as their kingdom there and then. And indeed, one day, as it were, Jesus will indeed come and overthrow evil empires and wickedness. He will overdo those and establish his people in his forever perfect kingdom. But that's at his second coming. Jesus didn't want his disciples running around telling everyone the wrong thing. Yes, the Christ has arrived, but you've got to understand what that means. Now later, this is a temporary thing, later in Acts chapter 1, we see Jesus sending his disciples out to go and proclaim to the whole world. But they had to understand that that road to glorious triumph was the road of suffering. He was going to be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and and he was going to be killed. And on the third day, he was going to rise again. And we can't overstate how much of a shock that would have been to them. What? The Christ is going to be killed? And Jesus, in fact, is going to tell the disciples explicitly five more times through Luke's gospel that this is going to happen to him. And even when it actually happened to him, they still didn't really get it. Because it was such a surprise. You know, we've called this little series the Upside Down Kingdom. Well, well, the kingdom, you know, is so upside down, so countercultural, so against what we would expect. And the reason the kingdom is so upside down is, well, because the king is so upside down, if you could put it like that. The Christ, the triumphant rescuer, it's going to be killed. It's going to be crucified. But did you notice that little word in verse 22? Must. Must. Now there is an incredible love and grace that stands behind that word. There is nothing outside of God that constrains or forces God to do anything. 
And yet Jesus can say, I must do this. This must happen to me. Because God, the Father, with his Son, made that eternal plan that he was going to send Jesus to come and die on the cross, to die for his people's sins, to deal with them fully and finally, to restore them to himself. That was the plan, the loving plan of God. And so Jesus could say, I must, this must happen to me. Who do you say that I am? To, to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, is to know that Jesus is the Christ. The unique one, not just another important or impressive person. No, the Christ. And not just the Christ, but the Christ who came to lay down his life, who came to serve and to die for others. Who do you say that I am? Can I, can I implore you that if you're still not sure about that, well, what, what, how can we be so sure? How can we be certain? Can I encourage you just to, to read through the first eight chapters of Luke? Do you remember, it was a long time ago, it was over a year ago, but, but Luke was written, the book was written to give us certainty into the personal work of Jesus. Go, go back and read it. If you're not sure who Jesus is, go back and read it. Come speak to me. We, we do these Christianity Explain courses regularly. Again, a chance to see why it is we could say that Jesus is the Christ. But he's the Christ. He's worthy to be followed. Well, what, what does that look like? What does that look like? So second point here, we'll give up everything for him. Give up everything for him. If Jesus is the Christ... The crucified Christ will give up everything for him. Have a look at verse 23. And he said to all, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It is a huge call, this call of discipleship. Did you notice it's universal in its scope? So did you see the beginning of verse 23? And he said to all now, so this, this isn't just the, 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 the 12 again. This isn't just the disciples. He, he wants everyone to know this. And he says, look, if anyone will come after me, this is, this is for everyone. This isn't just for the disciples. This isn't just for a kind of particularly keen Christian. This is the, the call, the universal call of discipleship. It's universal in its scope, and it is total in its commitments. Now, I think verse 23 is, is basically saying the same thing in three different ways. First off, he says, look, deny, uh, let him, let her, let the person deny himself. Deny. Now, this word isn't just kind of meaning, you know, forego a little pleasure. Now, I'm going to deny myself and not have that second donut. It's not as kind of, I'm going to deny myself and I'm, I'm not going to have that extra drink. It's, the word is this kind of total um, disowning. It's the word that's used when Peter, by the fire, after Jesus has been arrested, and the, the, the servant girl says that this man was with him, and Peter denied it. He denied he even knew Jesus. This word denies is this kind of total 
um, turning from the, the idolatry of, of self-centeredness. You see, if we're going to make Jesus our king, well, then we need to relinquish that position ourselves. It's a disowning, as it were, of self, laying it down, saying, I want you to be my king. Secondly, in verse 23, he says, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Take up his cross. You know, that saying people say, we all have our crosses to bear. Uh, and people, uh, you understand what they mean, don't you? But, like, but, but that is not what Jesus means here. Jesus is not talking about having an annoying relative or uh, a kind of ailment or illness. As hard as those things may be. But those days, the crucifixion, as Jesus was to do later himself, the, the criminal was often um, made to carry the cross beam, to carry it to their death. And so if you saw someone carrying your cross, carrying a cross, you knew that they were on a one-way journey. They were going to die. And to, to take up our crosses to die to self, now, our sinful selves is what led Jesus to take up his cross. Now, he's fully and wonderfully dealt with those sins, but, but now we're to join in, to, to, to die to self. And, and did you notice there, it's take up his cross daily. This is to be the pattern of our lives. And then finally, follow me. Now, we know, have a much clearer view of what it means to follow Jesus, having just seen what he said we're going to follow him on his path, enduring suffering, rejection, even death. We, too, prepared for those same things. There's, there's one way to follow Jesus. If anyone would come after me, and it is a huge call, deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me I think we, we can often wish there was an easier way. You know, instead of giving up the life we had, we, we kind of just want to add Jesus in to that life. I like that life. I'll keep hold of that life. But yeah, I'll, I'll go to church and I'll give a little money and I'll do, do, do this and that every now and again. Or maybe it's, you know, I'll follow him just as, as long as he's pretty much going where I wanted to go anyway. Lord, here is my life. I laid it all down for you, except this bit, except this thing. This one area, I'm afraid this one's mine. We want to follow Jesus just with as little inconvenience as possible. We, we find that that, that that is why this call is so radical. Because we are so, so, we so want to grab hold of our lives and, and keep hold of it. But Jesus went to the cross and he says, follow me. And now that is in the, the, the big picture for us. Like you ask yourself, what are you living for? What am I living for? Are, are you living for your, for your own self-advancement, for position, for success? But that is shown, that, that big question, actually in those small things. And if there's something that we love but he hates, 
will it go? Our time, money, sex life, what we watch, what we read, what we listen to. Give up everything for him. Now this is the complete opposite. What Jesus is doing here is the complete opposite of like good sales technique, right? Good sales, you go, you highlight all the benefits and you kind of minimize all the, the costs, potential costs. Here Jesus leads with the costs. He wants us to know up front what it means to follow him. And as I said, it is a huge call, isn't it? We've got to have pretty good reasons for doing so. Well, now he says, look, there is great benefit. There are really good reasons why we should do this. And if you just have a look at the beginning of the next three verses, so 24, 25, 26, do you notice how they all start with the word for? So here are reasons why it is that we, can, we should and can indeed do this. We're going to go quite fast through them, and they're, they're big. But, but reason number one, verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Here again, this is upside down kingdom stuff, isn't it? That you save your life now, you lose it later. You lose your life now, you, you save it. Now to, to save your life now is, is, is to live for me, live for my personal agenda, live for my comfort and entertainment, ambition, all those things. But to live like that now is to ultimately to lose life. What does that mean? I think J.C. Ryle put it so well. To lose, uh, that is to lose God and Christ and heaven and glory and happiness for all eternity. It is to be cast away forever, helpless and hopeless in hell. Save your life now. Lose it later. And that word lose is, is, is a total forfeit, like a ship going down if the slide works out but a ship that goes down totally sunk everything is lost but if you lose your life now if you're living for Jesus sake placing ourselves at his service well then that is to save our lives you see the triumph was to follow for Jesus it's just hinted at um, back there before. But did you notice after he was killed, on the third day he would rise? The, the, the greatness, the glory, the triumph comes after the suffering. Those who lose their lives now, save it. I do want to be very clear, though, that, that we're not saved by taking up our cross. We're saved because Jesus took up his cross. But having him done that, we're called to follow that path. So there's reason number one. Why should we um, follow, follow him in this radical way? Well, actually, to lose our lives now is to save it. Reason number two, very much links. Verse 25. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? This it highlights the tragedy of making that wrong decision. It's a rhetorical question. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his his loses or forfeits himself well, nothing I don't know if you ever imagine that I mean, I, just kind of sit imagine you had absolutely everything you ever wanted I don't know where it would, you owned a football team you owned a yacht 
private plane with some Caribbean islands to visit, I, whatever, if you had absolutely anything that you ever wanted. You know, but to the entire world, all of those things can't offset losing your soul. And if the entire world can't, how much less the, the little things that we're so drawn to in everyday lives? There's those purchases, pleasures, position. They might not be wrong in themselves, but they're definitely not worth losing your soul over. Reason three, and again, the eternal consequences are stressed. Verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. One day, Jesus is going to return in glory to judge the living and the dead. He's going to give that final verdict for where every single person is going to spend their eternal destiny. And Jesus says here, look, if you don't identify with me now, I won't identify with you later. And I think that that temptation to be ashamed of Jesus is often a temptation of self-preservation. I don't want to identify with Jesus here. I don't want to speak of him because I'm worried about what people are going to think of me. I'm, I'm worried about what it's going to cost me. But again, that life that is denying self, living for him, that temptation is far, far less, uh, far, far diminished. And again, I want to say, though, that if you, this isn't Jesus saying, look, if you've ever missed an opportunity to speak of me, you're eternally condemned. It's not what Jesus is saying. Again, just think of the disciples who were all embarrassed in the band of Jesus that is kind of the most important time at the cross, and yet how they were restored. So this isn't saying if you've ever missed an opportunity. Jesus went to the cross to die for that shame, and he gives us his spirits to help us to live for him. But again, it shows us why denying ourselves, taking up our cross to follow him, is so important. And finally, I'll put reason for it. It's slightly different, this one, but have a look at verse 27. But I tell you truly that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. It's hard to know exactly for sure what Jesus meant here. Um, I, I think the kind of three likely ones. So, but what he's saying is that people, so some people here aren't going to die until they've seen the kingdom of God. Clearly, they can't be talking about Jesus' second coming, the return in triumphant glory. Could be his transfiguration, we're going to see next week, where some of the disciples have seen this glimpse of his greatness and his, his kingdom. Could be Jesus' resurrection, could be Pentecost when the Spirit came. I think the big point is clear, though. The glorious kingdom is coming. And in light of the imminent arrival of his kingdom, it is madness to continue living as if this present world is the ultimate reality. This kingdom is coming. Live as though it is. So here, we've had our two questions. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Well, he says, and Peter says, he's the Christ. But he's the crucified Christ. What does it mean to follow him? Well, everyone... Every day, giving up everything for him. 
And that does lead us to ask a third and final question. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Let's pray. Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit to work in us. We cannot do these things that Jesus has called his disciples to do. We cannot do them ourselves. And so we ask for your Spirit's work in our hearts, helping us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him. We ask for the Spirit's strength in order to do that daily. Father, please motivate us, actually seeing that this is the best thing to do, and this is the path to life. Help us to remember that when it doesn't feel that way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.